We're going to read from 1 John 4. One John four, reading from verse seven. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Our text uh, this morning comes from John's Gospel, chapter 3. It's going to um, include a, um, a very well-known passage. So, uh, John, chapter 3, and from verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And now our text, just this one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then it goes on. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Well, congregation, I'm pretty sure you are aware that um, Good Friday and Easter are coming up. You just heard the announcement just two weeks away. And I don't know if you realise it, but it gives us 
as church a really great opportunity to answer some pretty big questions that people have. I'm sure you've come across it, maybe not, but I certainly have, uh, as I've talked to many people about Christ and God, that uh, people who question God's existence often say, well, if God is a God of love, why does he allow bad things to happen? Um, as I mentioned in the synopsis in the e-newsletter, you know, why does he allow uh, people, uh, tens of thousands of them, to have died in Syria and also in Turkey? with the, first of all, the earthquake and then the, the floods. Um, why does he allow Russia to invade Ukraine and the slaughter of all those people? Why did he allow, for example, COVID and the millions who died with that? If God is a God of love, why? And then if you try to explain, they'll possibly come up with a different an uh, question and that is, well, why doesn't he do something now? Why doesn't he do something about what's going on in the world? The chaos, the, um, the famines, the wars. Why doesn't he do something? What we want to see this morning in this passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We want to see this morning that this presents us with some very, very important answers to those questions. Answers that people may not particularly like, but they, they are the truth. And these are not just glib answers, you know, just cliches, things to try and quickly dismiss the questions. Uh, you know, as they say, to fob people off. No, these, these answers are profound answers. They are real answers answers. Like I said, they may not be accepted by those we're talking to, but they are profound answers. They are the truth. And if you're a visitor here this morning and you're inquiring about all of this, and you may even be asking some of these questions yourselves, it's great that you're here. And the Lord may well have brought you here this morning to hear these very questions raised and to hear these answers. We pray indeed that what you hear, uh, the Spirit will work in your heart and give you a great blessing through them this morning. So let's look at this passage, if God is a God of love. Straight away, there's an assertion there, he's not, if he is. John 3, 16, a passage well known, not just to Christians, but to non-Christians alike. Um, starts off with what? God so loved the world. God so loved the world. There's nothing ambiguous here. It's laid out straight away. Bang, there it is. God so loved the world. No if. When you um, have a look at the events of uh, Good Friday and Easter, you see how this is actually demonstrated in history in the person of Jesus and the events leading up to the cross. When you take a look at Palm Sunday, a lesson I just had with the children in the Murchison this past uh, a week ago, about to go there again tomorrow, Lord willing, um, we, we had this lesson on Palm Sunday. And when you take a look at uh, this, you, you have this wonderful imagery of Jesus coming on the colt of a donkey, as was prophesied thousands of years before. 
God had said through the prophet that their king would come riding on the colt of a donkey and they would sing out Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And so when Jesus came, it was fantastic. People just poured out of the city and they greeted him with those palm branches and they threw those coats on the ground in honor of the king. But who remembers that as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and all this cacophony of sound was around him, this, this jubilation that Jesus wept. Jesus cried. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Now listen to these words. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her, her chicks under her wings. You see the love in that? Jesus knows where he's going. You know, it always amazes me where we want to go to heaven, Jesus was. Now we, we sang that song, King of Kings. He came from heaven to a cradle in the dirt. He was there where we want to be, but he came here. Why? because he had to die on the cross if we were going to be there. I found that, find that just unimaginable that being in heaven you would want to leave. And yet he did that willingly. And so he's crying here because he knows what the people are about to do. The, the songs of praise are going to be exchanged for crucify him, crucify him. And so Jesus wept out of love for his people, knowing what was going to happen. And then when you uh, take a look at the foot washing, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, this is very close to the time of the crucifixion. You read something beautiful in John 13, 1. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. You know, again, know what those words entail. To leave the world and go to the Father meant the cross. And then it says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Love just completely pulled out. If you, if you have the full extent of something, nothing is kept back. It's fully expended. And so in the foot washing event, Jesus shows his love for those who are his in the world and then goes on to show them the full extent of his love. And then Gethsemane, where Jesus prays. Anyone remember how many times he prayed to the Father? Anyone? One, two, three. Three times. And it was exactly the same prayer each time. He knew what was in store for him. It wasn't just being nailed to the cross like the other two robbers. They were going to get the same physical punishment as Jesus. They were going to feel the same physical pain. But they would not cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He would carry the full wrath of God against all human sin. And so knowing that was just around the corner, knowing the sheer horror and terror of it, 
he told his disciples that his heart was troubled to the point of death. Jesus prayed three times, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass by me, let's do it. But each time after the prayer he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. How much love did that take? He stayed the course. He went all the way. He showed the full extent of his love. And then, of course, on the cross, as I said, he went all the way. And on the cross, his thoughts were not on himself, but on those who were crucifying him. Look at the love here. Jesus had preached, love your enemies, not just your friends, not just those who are kind towards you, but love your enemies. And here are his enemies crucifying him. And what does Jesus pray on the cross to the Father? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There's love fully displayed. Love to the full extent. And so we read in 1 John 4, 7 to 8, our first reading. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So God isn't just a person who loves, but he is love itself. God is love. And so also in verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. And so there you have it. If God is a God of love, well, yes, he is. And it's not just rhetoric. You know, people play the game of the words, but it's not there in action. Well, there are the words, look at the cross, and there you have the action. And that's only one small portion of scripture. You can find many such demonstrations of God loving his people. But we see how great the love of God is when we also take a look at the sorts of people he loved. Now, why doesn't he do something? Well, he, he has done something and he is doing something. But it's important before we go any further to consider those for whom it was done. When you take a look at God's people in the Old Testament, they were a pretty arrogant, stiff-necked lot. If uh, church councils of any denomination think that some congregations are pretty hard to deal with, well, they, they didn't deal with the Jews in, in the, the days of the prophets and also with regard to other leaders. Listen to what it says in Nehemiah 9, 16 to 18. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Can you imagine being taken out of Egypt? The crossing of the Red Sea. Who could ever forget the crossing of the Red Sea? And so soon afterwards at Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given, Moses didn't return. It was only 40 days. Moses didn't return. And so what did they want him to do? We want to have an idol. We'll call this our God. And let's go back to Egypt where the food's better. What a miserable lot they were. 
But the world today is not much different. When you take a look earlier in the Gospel of John, it speaks about Jesus. Jesus in terms of his divinity. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When it came to creation, nothing was created without him. Everything was created through him and for him. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only of God. But what did the world do? What does the world do today for the most part? Well, when you take a look at John 1, 10 to 11, it says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So there's two classes of people there. First of all, the world in general. He created it all. It didn't receive him. It didn't want to recognize him. Romans 1 puts it very clearly. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the creator, God, for that which is just material, things of idols, things that are dumb and can't speak and can't help. That's what the world is doing today. Professing wisdom and enlightenment, the world today is turning against God and saying, we're wiser now. And his own did not receive him, the Jews. His own people crucified him. And so it comes back to the question, well, why doesn't God do something? Well, think again about these people. I heard the expression many times as I was growing up. You made your bed. Anyone want to finish it? You lie in it. That's a truth the world does not want to hear. It wants to blame God for the mess. It wants to blame God for domestic violence. It wants to blame God for murders and and all sorts of things that are going on in the world. Why doesn't God do something? Well, the answer is, folks, he owes the world nothing. We say to to our kids, maybe, certainly you said to me many a time, when I was growing up, you made your bed, you lie in it. Probably one of the the biggest problems in today's world is children aren't being taught the consequences of their actions. They're being, being saved too many times. You made your bed, you lie in it. Is that what God has done to the world? Well, guess what? He hasn't. For a time, indeed, the world is experiencing the consequences of the fall. We know how the world was perfectly created. It was beautiful. There was no death. There was no crying. There was no pain. It was just hunky-dory. And man had a perfect relationship with God. And then Adam and Eve believed the lie of Satan and they wanted to be like God. They believed a lie about God. See, they were just like Israel. They came out of them. And so... They turned against God by eating the fruit. And then the blame game started as to who indeed caused all this to happen. And of course, Adam, after he's blamed Eve, then blames God. The woman you put here with me, she did it. But really, he's blaming God. You put her here with me. Now, 
Why doesn't God do something? Well, first of all, he loves us regardless of how terrible we are. And then on top of that, when he could have left us in the bed, he all along has been working through redemptive history to bring about a change, to return us to paradise. He has done something and he still is. In that same passage in Nehemiah 9 where it talked about Israel being stiff-necked, it says, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt or when they committed awful blasphemies. In the face of all that, God was forgiving and gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. So let's come back to that question again. Why doesn't he do something? Good Friday is the profound answer. He has. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son. And it wasn't the beginning, Good Friday. When you go back to the fall, in Genesis 3, when God curses the serpent, what does God say? I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, pointing towards the cross. There will be this big conflict. And there on that cross, Satan and his power would be crushed. And all through redemptive history, as you go through the Bible, you get these beautiful assurances and promises about what God is doing to restore us to himself, to regain paradise for us. And so you come to that wonderful passage in Isaiah 9, 6, just one of many. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh, how we remember that at Christmas time. But that was God at work. God was working through history, preparing things for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who can forget Abraham and what was promised to him and what came out of him? Abraham was called by God to go to a place he had no clue about. And in faith he had to go. And then God made these promises which you find repeated over and over again, not just to Abraham, but also to Isaac and to Jacob. I'll be your God and you'll be my people and a great, great people will come from you and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Well, guess who that was referring to? Jesus. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And he was promised there would be this, this wonderful, huge multitude of people. If he were able to count the sand in the seashore or the stars in the sky, that's how many his descendants would be. Thing was, he had no kids. And then God promised to him that he and Sarah would have a child. And as time went on, that looked impossible and all sorts of bad things happened as they took control of things themselves. 
And eventually when it was too old for them to have a child, they're in their 90s, God gives them a child to show again it's about him, not them. It's about what he's doing, not what they would do. And so Isaac's born. And then, wow, as Isaac's growing up, God comes to Abraham in a dream. And what does he say? Take this son, this only son, the son that you love so much, the son of promise in a sense. I want you to take him to a place, again, I'm going to show you, and you are to sacrifice him. I don't know about you, but I would have delayed it for a few days, at least to have a little bit more time with Isaac. Very early, next morning, Abraham gets up and gets going. And after three days, they come to Mount Moriah, go up, and Abram builds the altar. Puts Isaac on it, raises the knife to kill him, and at the last minute, God stops him and says, now I believe, you, you have faith in me. I've tested you. Indeed, you, you have faith in me. And then Abram becomes aware of a ram in a thicket, takes the ram, puts it on the altar, Previously, he had answered a question from Isaac. We got the wood and got the fire, but where's, where's the lamb? Where's the animal? Abraham, not realizing how it was going to come true, said, the Lord will provide. Well, he did, provided the ram. Why am I telling you this? Because when it came to Jesus and the cross, remember the prayers, Father, if there's any other way. In other words, he's praying, Father, spare me. What was done for Isaac wasn't done for Jesus. Isaac was spared, Jesus wasn't. On the mountain of the Lord, Abraham calls that mountain, on the mountain the Lord will be provided, and on the mountain of the Lord, Calvary, it was provided. Why doesn't he do something? He has. And the whole world marks the day one way or the other. Believers go to church and praise God. Non-believers will take the holiday, thank you very much. But that day is still so significant in the calendar of the world, it's still recognized. God so loved the world, he did. He sent Jesus and he didn't withhold his son. He had him die on the cross. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't let anyone tell you God's not doing anything. The biggest thing that needed doing, he has already done. And of course, to cap it all off, he raised him from the dead accepted the sacrifice where Jesus now reigns at the Father's right hand, ruling the world. But there's one other thing that we want to finish up with. What is God doing? And what is he still doing? We read there in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now you see, that's another truth the world doesn't want to know. How dare you tell me I'm going to hell if I don't accept your religion? That's the way they'll put it. But what did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. We don't need to be apologetic when we stand firm and say there is no other way, there is no other religion. This is the only way God has provided for the salvation of sinners. It's a truth you and I need to tell the world. If you're here this morning, it's a truth that you need to accept if you haven't come to that point in your life yet. There is no other way. We can't do it for ourselves. You can't do enough good things to outweigh the bad. God's requirement is perfection and you just need one sin to destroy that. So what's he doing now? It's been 2,000 years thereabouts has God gone to sleep has he wound up the world like a clock and now it's just running down without him it says uh, in 2nd Peter 3 9 the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness he's patient with you not anyone not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance this is the time of grace these years between Jesus dying on the cross and resurrection and his return are the time for repentance. It's a time for the world to get the message. Go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the church's mission given by Christ to tell the world. And when the time for this patience is over, when this period of the gospel is finished, the time for repentance will be closed. And people's position in eternity will be fixed forever. That's what he's doing now. He's giving time for people to hear about Jesus. He's giving time for people to repent and to be saved. And then when the end is near, when the end has come rather, he will act again. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, 24, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. There's a plan. It's working out. And when the time is reached, Jesus returns to take us home. So there's that question again. If God is a God of love, why? Well, let's finish with these words. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. How deep the Father's love for us. How do we respond to that? We've got these questions now and these answers, answers to share with those who don't know. How do you and I, in our lives and in our person, how do we respond to such love? I always go to the, the words of that beautiful hymn. Were the whole realm of nature mine, 
that we're an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you and give you thanks. Even though for the most part the world are naysayers who have their questions, which indeed, Lord, question even your existence by these questions that we have seen in the sermon today. We thank you that in this world, with all its confusion and, and its professing to be wise, now being enlightened, and instead, as your word says, becoming fools, having exchanged you for that which is material and nonsense. We thank you, Lord, that yet through your grace, through your spirit, you have worked in our hearts and lives. You've brought us here this morning to, to hear your word again and to remember. To remember that you are a God of love, that you are a God of action, that the greatest thing that could ever have been done for your world, you have already done in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you raised him from the dead, seated him at your right hand, accepting that sacrifice. And that even now he's bringing the world towards its end, ruling over it, building a kingdom which when completed, he'll hand back to you. We thank you that you are still at work. That through Jesus and your spirit and through your church, that the word is going forth, that the world may hear of what all this means and that a time for repentance is still being provided for those who don't yet know Jesus in a saving way. Help us, Lord, to, to be faithful in the mission that you've given to us also as a local church here. Forgive us, Lord, for any apathy that we may have demonstrated in the past. Forgive us, Lord, for uh, any slackness. But Lord, we pray that um, you will work through us as uh, we seek in so many different ways to reach out to the community in which you've placed us. To not just be a church within these walls, but also a church living within the community. We pray, Lord, that uh, through our witness, people may be introduced to what Good Friday is all about, to hear about the God of love, the God of action, the God who's given a time for repentance. We pray that as they hear of this, through your spirit, you'll grant the gift of faith. Help us, Lord, never to tire in the work that you've given us to do. Help us to remember that because Jesus is risen, there is nothing that we do that is in vain. You will cause it to bear fruit in your time and according to your plan. And so, Lord, we pray that through your spirit, you will help us to have that response, to hold nothing back, even as Jesus did not hold anything back of his love for us, help us in return not to hold anything back in our love for him. And so, Lord, we pray that not only the offerings we've given in the bag today will be uh, a symbol of our affection and love and commitment to you, but may our whole life be a living sacrifice in the school, in the home, in the workplace, wherever we are. May we continue to worship you and speak of you and bring you glory in our lives. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.